Eco Health, your internet radio. Danke, Tani Tina. Wat sy so lekker vir ons kom sing daar. Kom gorrel vir ons een bykie. Ok, ons het vir Diederik Hiesel van Roadtrip is weer saam met ons vandag en hy het weer interessante stories wat hy saam met ons gaan deel. Sê hallo Diederik. Goeiemiddag Deewald en al die luisteraars. Lekker, lekker. Wat sy story het jy vandag vir ons voorbereid? Well, we ended, we ended last week in Durban. We were following a couple of the Portuguese guys and we, I think we, we ended with uh, Vasco da Gama naming Natal because he found it on Christmas Day and we ran out of time and then we decided we were going to talk about Durban seeing as that's where our trip landed us after a couple of left <laughs> and right turns around the country. So we're going to focus on Durban today. And you caught me by surprise with our tribute to the ladies. And <laughs> there's two interesting, two interesting lady spots that I immediately know of in uh, Durban. One is an interesting little spot, which is called the Voices of Women Museum in Durban. Okay. And it's what it's almost what they what you would call a living archive, because what what is the Motivation behind it is to preserve the memories of women, and okay. they do it through means of tapestries. Tapestries. So women have been asked, or ladies have been asked, to produce tapestries about an incident in their life. And there's about 3,000 tapestries in this museum, and it's about farm life, it's about the politics, it's about looking for work, it's about... The transition in 1994, there's all sorts of stories and pictures um, in this museum. And it's called the Voices Voices of Women Museum in Durban, which awesome. I thought was quite a... And it's an unknown one. People don't know about that little spot. Yeah, I definitely did not know. And then another very special lady is the Lady in White Monument. Oh, the Lady in White Monument on the or in the harbour, part of the Port Natal Maritime Museum, and it's a statue dedicated to a lady by the name of Perla Seidel Gibson, who would always appear on the harbour and serenade the troops during World War Two as they embarked on the ships going off to war, and she would sing them, sing just stand there singing to the troops as they departed, and then she also used to welcome them back. Dressed in a beautiful white dress, she just stand on the quayside and sing to the troops, and then go home again. Okay, the lady in white. Wow, <laughs> how interesting! You don't perhaps know what she's saying. Ah, uh, no, I wasn't there. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we can Google what the songs were, but you're talking 1939, 1940, 41, somewhere around the, uh, around that period. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> The Lady in White. Uh, do we know what her name was? Also, Perla. Perla oh, Seidel no, Gibson. Say, you did say, yeah. Yeah. A whole mouthful. Perla. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> okay, what's next, next so, on the agenda? So, yeah, that, so that, that just got me thinking about the, the, la- the ladies in Durban. But Durban, Durban for me is a, quite an enigma and a very, very different type of city. And one of the almost obligatory stops that you have to do is a place called the Victoria Street Market. I've heard about it. Otherwise called the Indian Market. But the proper name is the Victoria Street Market. Okay. And 
Durban has got a huge, huge Indian population, and the Indians arrived in um, late 1800s as laborers, as indentured laborers for the sugar cane. That's, again, a, a little bit of a different story we can get into a little bit later. Yeah. But Durban is a city in the world with the largest population of Indians anywhere in a city outside of India. So Durban has a massive, massive Indian influence. And the Victoria Street Market, otherwise known as the Indian Market, you walk into that market and you're, you are literally assaulted by the colors and the smells of the incense yeah. and <laughs> also the, the beautiful smell of the curries and the curry powders and the spices that, that the traders sell. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, I mean, it's an absolute treat to go to some of these, these little markets and the little stalls in, in the market. And you look at the names that have been given and there's a mother-in-law's tongue and there's a, <laughs> there's a family exterminator curry powder and there's oh. a... <laughs> <laughs> wow, family exterminator. Okay. But you can come out of there with the most beautiful curry, curry spices and, and recipes that the ladies in there are only too happy to share recipes and stuff with you. But, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of other shops in there, but for me it's that the incense and the curry spices and those smells and the colors especially when there's a, when the Hindu festivals are on yeah. all the ornaments and the costumes and stuff come out for sale and there's all these huge bright bright colors yeah um, but if you walk through to the other side of the market and you go upstairs and you get to the exit there's a bridge that goes over the road and that leads through to the main Durban station okay. but when you stand on that bridge you you're standing at such a mix of, of cultures because you've got the Indian market behind you. In front of you, you've got the station, but that entire area is taken over by informal traders and it's called the Durban Muti Market. Oh, okay. So you're standing there, you've got the Indian stuff behind you, you've got the Zulu and the Zulu traders and the Muti Market in front of you. On the bridge, you're looking at one of the oldest European Catholic churches in Durban, the, I think it's called the, 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 the Cathedral of Emmanuel, I think it's called. Okay. Um, also built um, sometime in the late 1800s, I think, okay, I think it was 1880, 1882, somewhere around there. So you've got that history. So you've got the English-European history, you've got the Indian history behind you, and you've got this huge Zulu influence in front of you as you go into the station with all the, all the traders there. Now, a, a lot of people are too scared to walk through that market but it's an absolutely fascinating experience because you're hitting all the traditional herbalists. So you've got the Inyangas and the Sangomas all trading there. Okay. And the estimates of turnover there, I mean, it's an unknown turnover because it's a lot of cash. It's all cash yeah, business. Yeah. And it obviously exists because there's trade. I mean, it's the station. So like a million yes. people every day or something travel through Durban Station mm -hmm. while when Durban was still functioning pre, pre-lockdown. Yes. Yeah, I think you I think you were talking something like half a million people every morning and half a million people every night coming through on that railway system spreading out into town. So yeah. you've got the huge taxi system to pick up all the train passengers, obviously, to distribute them in the morning, and then in the afternoon the taxis come back, drop them off, and everybody goes through this market again and into the into the trains to go home. That's a lot. That's, That's a lot. lot of people. So there's obviously a lot of business there. But you walk through that market, and again, your senses are absolutely assaulted by what you're seeing there. And yeah. all the herbalists and the Sangomas and the Nyangas are standing there with all their goods. 
and it is bark and it is leaves and it's powders and it's little bottles of medicines and mooties and concoctions and lotions and potions and things that they've made along with obviously you know there's a lot of animal bits and pieces and bones and these you know <laughs> tradition, traditional weapons for sale and uh, you know it's an absolute <laughs> treat to walk through that and you've got to realize that this is this is reality this is the way it is and yeah. they wouldn't be there if it didn't exist yes <laughs> and it's an interesting study to go into how this actually works and a sangoma is is a heck of a thing it's not just somebody who decides one day well i'm going to set up a table and start selling some mooties and bits and pieces <laughs> bits and pieces <laughs> and it's 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 a heck of a trade i think i think there's an estimate somebody did a study on it and I think that the trade runs into like a couple of million rand a day or something insane that run through that market. And it's literally hundreds and hundreds of traders in there. There's a huge structure behind it because the guy who's sitting at the market with his table and he's got bark and plants and leaves and powders and things, yeah. he obviously needs to be supplied. Yes, of course. Yeah. So somewhere there's a massive transport system behind it. So from, say, the Drakensberg or northern Zululand where a particular type of plant grows that the Sangoma needs, he's got to have a guy collecting it first and foremost in the yeah. mountains or hills, wherever it is. They've got to put it onto some kind of transport. That transport system brings it into Durban. And then there's another, another trade that happens to get this onto the table. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so it's a whole, a whole business. It's, it's, a, whole, it's, a, it's a massive industry. It's a yeah. huge, huge industry. And you can't just dismiss it. Yeah, and I, must, I, I forget the author's name, but I picked up a book actually called Sangoma. And it's written by a, a white American okay. who came out to, to South Africa. And he was so taken by this that he actually became a Sangoma. And by last reports, he's still practicing as a Sangoma in Swaziland. Oh, okay. And it's a fascinating story because he is the first guy to actually put on paper his journey of becoming a Sangoma. Sure. Wow. And it's a huge training. It's a couple of years of, of hard training. And the Sangoma is a person who I can best describe it who's sort of a, a medium or who's a communicator between people who are of this world and the spiritual world. Yeah, because there's a very strong belief that the ancestors or the people who have departed still have a very, very big influence on you and your daily life. So when you go and consult a Sangoma, he gets guidance from the spirits to tell you what's happening. So this guy's, this particular guy's journey was he, he, you can go to a Sangoma training school. Sangoma training schools exist. Seriously. Seriously. <laughs> and the journey, as he describes it, was best sort of split into two parts, where it's first and foremost, it's a cleansing of the body, and then it's also a cleansing of the spirit. Because you cannot receive pure thoughts and receive pure guidance if your body is not pure as well. So there's an in intense period of bodily cleansing with, with a lot of... Um, medicines to purge you so that's a lot of cleansing and 
um, stuff to make you go to the toilet and to make you vomit to get rid of all the poisons, etc., etc. And once you are ready with that, you are then ready to begin your, your spiritual cleansing and your spiritual journey. And it involves a lot of um, dancing, drumming. It, it, it involves a lot of going into trances, for example, because then your mind is open to communication from the spirits. You then get a spiritual guide, and when you are in your trance state, your guides will speak through you to whoever you are giving advice to. Yes. So a lot, of the, a lot of the people at the market are, are Sangomas. You can identify them normally by their uniform. They, have like a, they normally have like crossed beads across their chest. And, and I suppose uh, traditional wear. Traditional way. There's a lot of traditional wear in the market that you, that you can see there, and yeah, you, you can you, if you really want to, you can you can consult a sangoma. And I mean, I got a couple of really cool stories about about that, where you go, it's not possible. How can they possibly know this about me, or how could they possibly know <laughs> these these kind of things? And it's it's yeah. it's, a, it's an incredible it's an incredible. Um, I don't know what you want to call it, occupation, profession, yeah. uh, story. <laughs> and then you've also just got the, the genuine herbalists who also, again, study for years on the medicinal properties of plants. And again, you cannot just dismiss it. A lot of our modern medicines are plants and are plant-based medicines. So all you're doing is you're getting it from a chappie in a white coat and in a little bottle that's in a little white pill, whereas the Inyanga is actually giving it to the same stuff, but it's in natural form. Isaiah, ons is weer terug. Het lyk my, ek het my mic nou weer gekry. Die druk, ek het knock three times, ek het so stil maak. Ek kan ons verder gaan. Oké, okay, ik vraag om verskoning, want het lyk my ons het daar so'n bykie van een probleempie op die ding. Maar uh, ja, ons, uh, ek denk my mic is nou weer aan die gang. Die druk, uh, gesels gauw daar, laat ons gauw hoor, hoe klink jou na? Ja, nou we talking about the Sangomas and the Inyangas. Shut, I can hear you perfectly. Alrighty, um, quickly before we go into that, quickly tell the people about your app, your phone app. A uh, mobile app called Road Trip SA, and it's a joint project between myself and a guy who's doing his PhD in history at the University of Northwest, a guy by the name of Emil Kutsia. And we're trying to highlight the history and the monuments and the points of interest right around South Africa. And at the moment, we've got about, I think we're just over 4,000 spots in total. Um, and it's it's everything that's a monument, it's a statue, it's a memorial, it's interesting buildings, it's historical sites, it's and the motivation behind it was that people tend to travel. If you're driving from Joburg to Cape Town, you just tend to climb on the N1 and you scream down to Cape Town as fast as you can. But you're missing so much of South Africa and you drive into the little dorpies and then suddenly you see a statue or something, you don't know what it is. And that's the gap we're trying to fill, that you can actually go onto the app, you can have a look at it, it gives you, it gives you the picture, it gives you the location, you can navigate to the spot if you really want to find something special. And we've got a little short brief history on every single spot that we've got on the app. So you can find it on um, Google Play Store, you can find it on Apple as well, downloadable, 149 bucks, and you've got the entire history of South Africa right in your pocket. Now, as I said, road trip, uh, there's a call. 
ook hoe kom ons die show uh, road trip with Diedrik noem. En uh, voordat ons verder gaan samen met Diedrik, want hy het baie om vir ons te vertel, um, ek wil julle net herinner, morgen tussen 1 en 2 is Pierre van de Merwe saam met ons op die show, hy is een van Pierre het EcoHealthse depots, en hy bring een speciale persoon saam en daar ook een groot aankondiging en uh, ek denk dit gaan oor die 1 september. So hou ons Facebook dop vir daai, hy het nog nie vir my verdere inlichting gegeen nie, so jylle gaan maar moet luister morgenmiddag om te hoor waar oor het alles gaan. Ok, Diedrik, let's jump back into it. Yeah, now we're chatting about the Sangomas and the Nyangas, and I got a really cool story. A, a friend of mine at one stage was running some adventure trips over the top of Lesotho. Now, I don't know if any of you have been over some of those dirt roads in Lesotho, but Years ago, when I had my first Land Rover at, at university times, it took me five days to cross Lesotho. On a map, it's 200 kilometers, but it took me five days to drive across the country on some of those <laughs> roads. But it was a stunning, stunning trip across the top there. But he, he had some American clients with him, and the lady there really got into this, and she wanted to consult with a Sangoma. And it's a fascinating experience to go into one of these consultations with a, with a Sangoma. I've done it myself once or twice. Okay. And... She went in, my buddy found a, a local Sangoma on the top of Lesotho somewhere, so we're talking a genuine Sangoma, not a little tourist village type of thing. Okay. <laughs> and she went into the consultation, the consultation's obviously private, it's in a tent or in a hut that's specially made for that. Okay. And eventually she comes out and my buddy asks her and says, well, what did you think? And she says to him, well, interesting, but he got a couple of things wrong. And he goes, okay, like like how? And he says, no, no, she, he was talking about my family and stuff. He got a mostly right, but he, he said, I think I've got like three children, but I've only got two. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that that doesn't make sense. Anyway, so the trip carries on and lady leaves and goes goes back to the U.S. My buddy receives an email and uh, the email says that Sangoma was right. I'm pregnant. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> so, surprise. Yeah, so yeah, you, 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 you hear stories like that. and I mean, I've been into consultations with a Sangoma out of the blue. He doesn't know me from a bar of soap, never seen me before. Yeah. And he, a Sangoma has what, they, what, we, what we call the bones. Okay, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible word. But a Sangoma through his career will collect a... Um, a bunch of little artifacts. So he's got a coin, he might have a domino or a dice, or he might have a lion claw, or you know, he will collect artifacts that, that are of meaning to him. Yeah, yeah. And that is what becomes called the bones. The bones, yeah. And in your consultation, uh, there's a bit of a ritual, and you know, you, you blow on the bones, the Sangoma will blow on the bones, and he then does what's called throwing the bones. So the bones then fall onto... onto uh, a carpet or a piece of piece of cloth and in a circle and whatever is in the circle is of relevance whatever falls outside of the circle is no longer of relevance in your life okay. so i'm i'm sitting in the in in a consultation the one day and the sangoma is pointing out the little bits and pieces and he points to one of these little artifacts and he says your father is dead okay and i go whoa my father had passed probably two, three months before that. Okay. And my father's bone, because every artifact is assigned a um, 
something. Some, something. Yeah. So it's either family or it is wealth or it is health or it is something. Yeah. And my father bone had fallen outside of my circle. Okay. Now, there's no way that this guy could know that. Yeah. My children artifacts had fallen inside the circle. And at that stage, I only had two children, and I had two children artifacts in my circle. Children three, four, and five had fallen outside of the circle. Okay. So, completely accurate. And you, you, you come out of something like that, and you go, that is weird. That, that, it, it's, it's almost impossible for <laughs> that to have been real. Yeah. So, you, you know, you walk out with a kind of sense of disquiet, and you're going, my Western way of thinking cannot work this one out and you sort of put it in a box and you go ah it doesn't work you know it's, 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 it's strange but yeah. absolutely fascinating and yeah and again we, we need to get back into Durban now but you know that that market there and you walk you walk back into the Indian market and last last week we were talking about food the best bunny chows that you can get mm-hmm. are sitting in the market and that's a that's a Durban invention, a bunny chow, and yeah. the legend of bunny chow. It's obviously you don't you're not eating rabbits, but um, the word bunny chow comes from the legend is that it comes from the Durban Club. Now the Durban Club is a beautiful old Victorian building on the embankment overlooking the harbour, and at the back door, the legend is that that a chef or a cook there would help feed the poor, and his name was Mister Bunya. <laughs> and that got translated into bunny. Okay. And the people buying the food, and I think it was the leftovers or the stuff that was too old now to serve again to the patrons of the club. Yeah. So the club got this plan, well, let's sell it out the back door. And plastic containers or polystyrene containers at that stage didn't exist. So they had to find a way now to hand out this food. Yeah. And Mr. Bunya discovered the way. And he said, okay, well, if I make the bread, the container... I can put the stew into the bread, and then the, the guy who's buying it doesn't have to throw anything away. He's got an entire package in, in yeah. one, and that's apparently that's where awesome. our bunny chows come from. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. And, right. that, and that, of course, has been adopted now by the Indians, the Indian um, restaurants. I mean, you can buy bunny chows anywhere, and yeah. it's, a, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's always a constant hunt to find the best restaurants in town that make a good bunny chow. I love a good bunny chow. <laughs> But some of them, there's more bread than anything else. So, but uh, yeah, there's one in Boxburg that makes the best bunny chows. But I can't remember what's it called. Uh, I think it's on Ronnebilt Road somewhere. But uh, <laughs> and hot, oh my word! Yeah, it's always a good challenge to find a lack of bunny chow. Go for the medium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a good a good curry doesn't just burn your mouth. A good curry starts in your stomach. Yeah, and you go. You should. You should be able to taste everything. It's easy to just throw chilies into something. That's not a curry. Yeah, no, that's not curry. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> and isn't it awesome when you leave a curry overnight? It somehow tastes even better the next it, it day. It does. It just gets better. It just gets better and better and better. <laughs> <It> said wow. <laughs> but yeah, Durban. Durban's a fascinating mix of these different histories and cultures and all the rest of it. So we got the Indians. The Indians arrived. Um, in, in, in 1860, November 1860 was when the Indian, Indian, the first what we called indentured laborers arrived. And they were brought in to work on the sugarcane farms. Now, the history of Durban goes back, obviously, straight through to Vasco da Gama, who um, sees, sees the coast of Natal, 1497. He gives it a name and he carries on and he goes off to, um, to the Far East 
But oh yeah, you said the uh, Natal. The, the Natal is Portuguese for Christmas. Christmas oh, Day. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So you know that that opened the route through to the Far East. So now now. You're talking the whole 1500s, 1600s. There's now ships now starting to sail out to the Far East for spices, bringing them back to Europe. But in in uh, 1686, a Dutch East India ship gets gets wrecked on the coast of Natal. A ship called the Stavanissa, oh. and a couple of the guys survive the shipwreck. They land on the beach and they make their way now through to now what is Durban. They get adopted by the local tribe, uh, by the a, a chief by the name of Chief Lang, Langibale. Now, we're not talking yet about Zulus. The Zulu tribe or grouping is part of a much bigger grouping. And it's an interesting study because if you go back with the language, the Nguni language, now Zulu is close to Shangan, is close to Ndebele, is, you know, there's a whole group of okay. allied languages yeah. that, 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 that come from, and they trace it back to Central West Africa as an origin. Okay. So, again, you look at this and you go, you know, there must have been some kind of gradual movement of that language or tribal grouping coming down the east coast of Africa and eventually settling into what is now Swaziland, and into um, Zululand. Yes. But anyway, so these survivors now get adopted by this by this the, this crowd. And a couple of years later, now you can imagine. I mean, 1686, you get wrecked, and in um, only three years later, 1689, you get rescued. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're sitting there in the sort of swampy Durban kind of harbour marshland thing for three years, living living with the locals. Yeah. But anyway. So the the ship arrives, and they come to rescue them, but also with the instruction to try and purchase land, because obviously the Dutch East India Company is looking for harbors and looking for safe havens for their ships. Because yes. the more ships that come up and down, and the more ships that survive this two-year, three-year journey, the the richer the company's going to get. Yeah. So they bought Durban. They bought Durban from this tribe for a grand total of one thousand six hundred and fifty pounds. <laughs> wow! So okay, we're talking we're talking late 1600, but you yeah. know that that that, 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 that a sizable amount of money. So Durban originally purchased legally purchased by the Dutch East India Company. They never did anything with it, so it's probably a bit of a waste of money. But Durban started off as a Dutch-owned piece of land. Yeah. <laughs> years later, years later, 1822. A British ship comes along, a British ship called the, the, the Salisbury. has got a guy on board by the name of James King and a guy by the name of George Farewell. They are trading up and down the coast. And they, by force in a storm, have to seek uh, safety. And a funny geographical feature of our east coast is that all the rivers are closed by sandbanks. Somehow the waves and the currents close all the rivers with sandbanks. So you can't sail up any of our rivers. Okay. But this storm, they got caught. The wind was howling. They had to, and they decided, okay, let's let's go into this river and see if we can't seek safety. So with a bump and a scrape, they managed to make it over the sandbank, <laughs> and they find themselves in this massive lagoon harbor as to what is now Durban. 
Okay. So they now they now realize that this this has got potential as a trading port or something. Outpost. We can yeah <laughs> we can we can actually do something with this. Yeah. So they go off back down to Delagoa Bay, now Port Elizabeth. They raise some funds. They come back and they actually um, come with the intention of settling what is now Durban. Yes. When I talk about settling, I mean you're talking two or three mud huts. Uh, you know, and the guys are trading for ivory and and that kind of stuff. So we're not yeah. talking cities and what have you. You're talking a tiny little trading outpost. <laughs> but these these guys and they 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 come in with a chap by the name of Henry Francis Finn as well. Okay. Now these guys were the first people, as far as we know, really to have proper contact with King Shaka. Okay, Shaka came to power, and again, we're not too sure, somewhere around 1812 or 1816 or so, Shaka consolidates the Zulu nation. Before Shaka, the Zulus didn't really exist as a consolidated whole or as a nation. It okay. was scattered tribe. You could probably best describe it like, like our understanding of the Scottish clans. Okay, yeah. L- little yeah. clans under their yeah. own chieftains and sort of having the same culture but not submitting to a central authority. Yes, yes. Shaka was the first one to consolidate the Zulus into a central government with far-reaching power and, and like almost like a nationality. Yes, yes. But these guys are now the first, first people to have proper contact with Shaka. And somewhere along the line, Francis Finn makes big buddies with Shaka because Shaka had been stabbed. One of his half-brothers had tried to assassinate him. He'd survived the assassination attempt, but he had a, 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 a spear wound. Yeah. Finn treats Shaka, and Shaka survives this. And so now Shaka obviously now becomes very big buddies with, with, with Finn. Okay. Yeah. And they then eventually conclude some negotiations, and then Shaka gives the land around Durban to Finn. I think it's 25 miles north, 10 miles south, and 100 miles inland is now given. Wow. <laughs> To, to Finn. So they then decide, okay, we can now do something with this. And they then decide to name this place Durban after the governor of the Cape, Sir Benjamin de Urban. That's where the name comes from. Okay. So Durban as a sort of as, as a concept or as a founding date, we're now looking um, back to about eight, to back to 1824. Okay. And that's when Durban actually started as a formal town or city again you're talking a couple of mud huts and one or two little buildings and yes. that's where durban's now starts as a trading outpost awesome so yeah so so after that it's a trading outpost it's purely commercial you're not talking about colonies you're not talking about trying to get mineral rights you know it's guys turning a fast buck and trying to do something and then then of course we now start talking and we're looking at the arrival of the fur trekkers. Yes. That is, the fur trekkers is sort of one of the pivotal history points in South Africa. And the best way I can describe sort of our understanding of the fur trekkers is like uh, the USA has got the cowboy as like the founding myth. <laughs> we in South Africa yeah. have the foot trackers yes, as, yeah. as our founding myth. Now, I don't know if I'm going to offend people with that kind of analogy or not, but the foot trackers definitely were an absolute pivotal point in our history. 
And obviously the fur trackers, the establishment of the Boer republics as the fur trackers left the Cape and the, and the far eastern Cape. The eastern Cape had run through about a hundred years of warfare. Oh. Um, if I rewind a little, the history a little bit, 1795, the Dutch East India Company goes bankrupt. At that stage, the Netherlands was under French control called the Batavian Republic. They, by force, have to come into Cape Town. They make a mess of it. The French are not great administrators. And this little outpost <laughs> on the other side of the world was had very little interest to them. So um, the British come in, etc., etc. You know, so it's a whole gemorst down in Cape Town for a couple yeah. of years. Eventually, 1806, the British come back and say, uh-uh, we're now taking over. And that's when the Cape be actually became officially a colony under the administration of a foreign power. Up until that stage, the Dust East India Company is private enterprise. Okay. They're turning a buck. They're not interested in colonizing. They've got no yeah. in they, they want to supply their ships, and they're trying to do it as cheaply as possible, with as little administration as possible. But, you know, a lot of corruption was running, running rife in there, people abusing the company properties, abusing company money, <laughs> building palaces and stuff. Why does you know, that sound familiar? That sounds horrendously <laughs> familiar. It's a... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go into that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not an unusual story. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, so, so the Dutch East India Company is this massive. Organ I mean, it's probably one of. The, I think it's still rated as probably the biggest private enterprise to have ever existed. Yeah, and they go bankrupt eventually. So Britain comes in. Britain formalizes the whole thing. Britain's now got this colony, and you've got a hundred years of of border dispute in what is now the Eastern Cape area. Yeah. So that whole area sort of from Grahamstown, PE, is called the border area. It's called the border area for a reason. It was the border of the old British colony. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of unrest there. And that was one of the contributing factors to the fur trackers leaving that area and moving northwards to get away from the British, get away from the war, get away from all the drama, and let's yeah. set up somewhere new. Yeah. And then, of course, the, one of the most famous groups of the fur trackers under Peter Tief arrives down in what was then Port Natal. Port Natal. Okay. So Port Natal, the harbor was 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 occupied. There were there were Europeans there and European traders. The foot trackers managed did trading with them. It was obviously a very useful supply line. You've been in an ox wagon for two years or three years or something. You know, you, you need a <laughs> yeah. bit of kit and having a harbor yes. down down the road was kind of useful. Yeah. But you know, that, that period now, you, we've just finished Shaka, the foot trickers are coming in, and so much of our history played out in, in KZN. You're looking at Zulu uh, civil wars. You're looking at the rival of the British. You've got the Portuguese just up the road in Maputo, in Mozambique. Yeah. They had all sorts of dramas up there. You've got... Um, you know, the four trackers arrive. You've got Dingan. Dingan has to, has to move away. You, so you've got the four trackers versus the Zulus. Then you've got the British versus the Zulus. 1879, <laughs> the Anglo-British yeah. War. You've got <laughs> the first Anglo-Boer War. You've got the second Anglo-Boer War. And all of that played out in that, in sort of southern KZN. Okay. We'll carry on with that just after this. Let's quickly go listen to some music and drink some water. I suppose you're getting thirsty. I wonder if I should go wave to the guy outside that blown his horn. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> okay. Kom gaan luister gegeus hoe stikkie muziek. Ons is nou weer terug by julle.
As I blame it on the boogie uh, fun uh, the Jacksons or the Jackson 5 as they were known back then. Ille leisten net in radio Eco Health in ons doen die road trip with Diedrich wat hy vir ons deur Zuid-Afrika vat met al die geschiedenis en al die interessante stories wat hy vir ons vertel. Diedrich, take it away my band. All right, we're still, we're still talking Durban and yeah, we have to skip out a little a couple of stuff. We can come back to them next week or the week after. But we're now talking, we're now sitting in about 18, what, 1824, 18, 1830 or so. Now the foot triggers, 1838, they arrive in um, what they eventually term the Republic of Natalia. Now that culminated eventually in the Battle of Blood River. Okay. And I think that's a whole episode on its own, I the Fort Trekkers, yeah. Blood River, etc., etc., Petratif and the whole story there. Uh, we've only got 10 minutes left, and that, 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 that's just not long enough to cover that. Yeah. But eventually the Fort Trekkers establish a republic. The Zulus are north of the Tugela River. Britain is sitting now in charge of the Port of Natal. But ongoing tensions between the Fort Trekkers and the Zulus prompts the English to go, okay, Maybe we need to just secure our uh, our harbour. So they send a little force into into Durban to secure the harbour. A guy under Captain Captain Smith comes in, and they arrive 1842. So now we're talking four years after after the Fort Trekkers have beaten beaten the Zulus at Blood River. So they arrive. They build this little uh, they build a little fort, and the Fort Trekkers decide that, that this is. This is not so cool. But anyway, it, it <laughs> culminates eventually in a battle, and it's called the Battle of Congella. Okay. The first battle between the British and the Fort Trekkers okay. happened right in the middle of what is now central Durban. The Fort Trekkers eventually managed to besiege the English, and the English are now stuck in this fort, and now they realize that they need some help. So they send a guy on his horse. And if you look at the harbor, as you're driving southwards down the embankment, you've gone past the, the Dagama clock, you've gone past the Durban club, and if you look on the left-hand side, you'll see a chappie on his horse. That's Mr. Dick King. <laughs> so Dick King gets dispatched with his servant, servant by the name of Ndongeni. They manage to escape out of the fort, and they now are sent to go and get help. Now, help was 600 kilometers away. So this guy sits on his horse with his servant and he rides. And I think he made it in 14 days. He rides 900 kilometers through wilderness. There's nothing there. It's wilderness and that's wild coast territory. And I don't know if any of you have driven the wild coast. (laughs) It is dongas and it's rivers and it's mountains and it's cliffs and it's forests. And it's not an easy ride. But Dick King makes it in in 14 days. He manages to reach Grahamstown. Grahamstown at that stage had already been settled. The 1820 settlers had come in down that part of the world. Again, that's a whole different story. So Grahamstown was relatively well established, an English outpost with, with garrison, and he summons help. And as far as my memory serves me correct, the, the, the 24th Regiment is stationed in Grahamstown, and they march now from Grahamstown. They now follow Dick King's footsteps all the way back to Durban. And they then lift the siege of the British garrison in the fort. They chase the remnants of the fort trekkers out of Durban, and Durban is then consolidated under under British rule. And just an interesting aside, it is the 24th Regiment that years later, obviously not the same guys, because we're now talking, um, we're sitting here in 1842, 
1879, the 24th Regiment were the guys who were wiped out at Isan Juana by the Zulus. So it's that same regiment who'd served all the way through Southern Africa and saw all sorts of different actions, um, and eventually they got wiped out in Zululand as well. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, maybe not awesome, but interesting. <laughs> so yeah, so eventually, you know, that culminates 1844. Foot triggers give it over and say, okay, you guys can have the harbor. And obviously the British were very focused on that harbor. They needed a harbor on the east coast. The Portuguese were busy in Lorenzo Marks. No other decent harbors. You've got the entire wild coast that have got nothing. So that's why the British were concentrated there. And they were trying to work a little bit against the slave trade that was operating up on the east coast of Af Africa at the time. Okay. Awesome. <clears throat> What, uh, how much time do we still have left? Uh, it looks like we've got about 10 minutes to go. Okay, good. So we can carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so Durban Durban has got this 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 magic mix of all of these bits and pieces. But again, you know, the standing. If I go back to that market, and you're standing on that bridge, and you see all these different cultures. And another interesting spot is the the the, the Juma Mosque in Durban, so one of the, the biggest mosques in the Southern Hemisphere, is also right in the middle of the of the mix there. So you've got the mosque, you've got the the Catholic Church, you've got the Indians, you've got the Zulus, you've got the Europeans. So this whole Mingelmus um, sits in Durban, and that's something that that y y you have to try and experience. That Durban is not just sitting on the beach. It's great to sit on the yeah, beach with a cold yeah. beer, and I had I had to giggle at. at I mean, I spent many, many years on, on, on buses and doing bus tours and coach tours around South Africa. Yeah. And I worked for a, a huge operator, worldwide operator. We won't mention the names because it's actually quite embarrassing. <laughs> and uh, we all know that Durban is on the east coast of Africa. And we all know that the sun rises in the east. Yes. And this operator put out a worldwide campaign about sitting on the beach in Durban and watching the sunset. And, uh, <laughs> oh wow! Okay. And there were a couple of seriously embarrassed faces, uh, recall of brochures and pamphlets, and all sorts of things that you can't actually sit on the beach in Durban and watch the sunset. Hey, nah. yeah, I can <laughs> and see what you mean with embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, no, that that was that was an absolutely epic fail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, no. But Durban, Durban, you, you can spend a good couple of days exploring Durban. I mean, you've got the Natal Sharks board up the road. You've got the, uh, that whole esplanade. You've got um, Ushaka Marine World. The aquarium there is out of this world. Um, Durban for a long time sat with a huge crime problem on the beachfront. In, in years gone by, that what they call the Golden Mile. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, if you remember some of those old hotels, four or five-star Southern Sun hotels along that beachfront, a lot of that came crashing down. And the issue with Durban is there's a lot of street kids in Durban. Uh, at the time of the HIV pandemic, oh, I think yeah. the KZN had the highest incidence of HIV in the country. And that took out a massive middle segment of the population. So you had granny and grandma sitting in the rural areas. Mom and dad were gone. Yeah, yeah, and the kids would now gravitate to the city. Yeah, and even now, if you if you drive early morning, you'll see rows of kids under blankets on the pavements, um, just homeless, and they, they they either they beg or they steal. Yeah, and the issue being, it's it's petty crime. You know, the guy will pull a knife on you, and you'll you'll, you'll want to grab your wallet or something. 
Yeah. You know, but Durban is definitely trying to clean that, clean that up. That the, the, the beachfront area is still a stunning place to sit. I mean, if you go north, I mean, Umschlange rocks. You oh, sit yeah. in one of the verandas of the hotels there. You have a massive breakfast. I mean, I sat there the one day, and there's, there's dolphins playing in the waves as you're having your bacon and eggs. Oh, awesome. You know, it's yeah. awesome. There's, there's yeah. so many awesome spots there to visit. Um, you go to the City Hall. There's a beautiful natural history museum in the City Hall. If you, you know, so there's, again, there's this, 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 this massive cultural thing. And I mean, again, one of the legends in Durban is that the City Hall is modeled after the city hall of, I think it is Belfast in Ireland. The sort of British sort of seemed to do a copy-paste where they had something that looked, looked cool and they just said, okay, we'll build another one there because it looks lacquer. And somewhere, one of the legends is, and I'm, I'm, again, I don't know how true this is, that somewhere the plans got mixed up and yeah. the wrong plans arrived in Durban, but they built the thing anyway. Yeah. And it sits there with a massive, massive roof structure that's designed to hold something like 30 tons of snow on it or something because they got the plans mixed up and this, this, the, the building that they put in Durban was supposed to be put up somewhere in Europe. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, the builder's not going to ask you. He's just going to put the, the roof beams up and the beam trusses up and you'll build what's on the spec. <laughs> oh, my word. Okay. There's something wrong with the English somewhere along the line. <laughs> <laughs> they missed a beat somewhere. No, they missed a beat. But again, you know, you got to look at these guys in the light of the times. Yeah. You know, you're talking 1800s. It's sort of the Bible in one hand and Christianity, and we've got to go civilize the world. Yeah. And, you know, then, yeah. And yeah. if you look at their buildings on their soil, I mean, it's brilliantly designed and all the, the thought that went into the building of those places. Those, those old colonial buildings are, are, I have to use the word majestic. Yeah. Yeah, you stand in front of Durban City Hall, and I don't think we could put something like that up, up today. The cost would just be too astronomical. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's just beautiful, beautiful architecture. And, yeah, it's, it's again, it's a sort of such a fascinating thing because you stand in Durban and you stand there um, in front of the city hall. You've got Queen Victoria looking at you. There's a statue of Queen Victoria <laughs> who still looks at you. You've got, I think it's General, one of the, I think it's, I think it's General Redvers Buller, I think his statue up, is up there. I, I speak under correction on that one. But, you know, you're surrounded by these colonial figures and yeah. you're looking at a, a, a building that's supposed to be up in, in England somewhere as, as the city hall. Yeah. But you turn around and you've got the Indian traders, you've got the guys selling curry. You In Durban, you you more than likely, you might even see the rickshaw guys. I don't know if you remember oh, the yeah. rickshaw guys along the beachfront. That's, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that seems to have disappeared a little bit. There are still a couple of them operating. But the rickshaw is an Indian gadget. It's an Indian yeah. taxi. It was brought in with the Indian laborers for the sugarcane plantations. Yes. And uh, adopted by the Zulus. Yeah. You know, so this mix, this entire mix of cultures and stuff is just what, what I love in Durban. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you look at the whole of South Africa, it's, it's also a mixture, like the USA as well. It's, I mean, there's also a mixture of all different types of cultures and everything. So, yeah, I think we've got a rich history. We've got a stunning history. We've got an absolutely stunning history. And places like KZN, you get so many intertwining historical threads that come together. 
You know, I mean, just as we're trying to talk about fur trekkers, you've got to tr- go back to the Eastern Cape for what happened there, and then suddenly you've got to go back, go back. to <laughs> where where the guys came from out of the north, and then you've got to trek back to the Portuguese, and then you've got to try and, you know, you're trying to put all these little threads together to try, yeah. I'm hoping, making some kind of coherent story. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it is very interesting, and it's, I, I love it, I love it. I can sit here and... Listen for hours. And I know you can talk for hours. I can talk for hours. <laughs> An hour is too short. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, well, we might have to look at maybe extending it a little bit. <laughs> if we can do that. or Otherwise, we'll just do a segment every week. <laughs> no problem with that one at all. I love it. <laughs> um, what's the time there? Let's see, let's see, let's see. We're on 13.58. Oh, lovely. We have to say goodbye already. Can you imagine that? Where's this hour gone to? <laughs> oh, my word. And, uh, and very little music, mostly talking. Yeah. <laughs> we hardly had any music, except for the beginning where we had the trouble with the microphone. You, you, you might just have to exit with the Johnny Clegg classic. Ah, uh, let's see. Which one? Which put, one? You, put you under a bit of pressure there. Yeah, I, I see African Sky Blue. African Sky Blue by Johnny Clegg. Because okay. that is, that is again, such an emotive song for me. Because the, the story behind African Sky Blue is actually, it's actually a mine worker who is now working underground and he's singing the song and he's longing to see the African sky and the sun come up again. And the inspiration of that was an incredible and an enormous amount of Zulus eventually went to work on the mines up in Johannesburg. And we, again, we're talking 1886, gold is discovered, and there's this massive requirement for labor, and a lot of Zulus eventually wound up in Joburg working underground. And that's it's kind, kind of not lucky. You're used to Zululand and the sunshine and the beautiful yeah. weather, and now you're sitting up in Johannesburg where it's freezing cold, and then during the day you go a mile underground. Not cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or too cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nou, ons gaan vir julle baie sê, en nou hoop julle het lekker ge- geluister, ons speel uit met die African Sky Blue van Johnny Clegg. There we go. Okay, signing off uh, van Diedrik en Gypsy, so Radio Eco Health.